Hey, you guys, we're going to get started tonight. It's great to see everybody here for the first night of apologetics at Twin City Fellowship. It's going to be, just to let everybody know, it's a 12-week course, and the first four weeks are going to be logic, okay? So in just a minute, I'm going to sell you on it so you don't run for the doors, all right? But you guys probably all know that because you got the handout. So it's going to be four weeks of logic, and then from there we're going to get into regular apologetics, which will be proving the existence of God, refuting false worldviews, uh, proving the inerrancy of scriptures and things like that. We're going to go for 50 minutes, all lecture. At that time, when I'm lecturing, don't say anything. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> i got to go fast uh, to get through it all. But what we'll do is we'll take a 10-minute break, and then what we're going to do is we're going to have a half an hour. Now, we're going to do this a little bit different. If, is anybody taking the systematic theology? You know, you guys probably had a lot of interesting questions to ask and talk about. Well, in... Uh, Logic, I thought, well, what if nobody has anything interesting to add to a categorical syllogism? Which may very well happen because they're not maybe that interesting to you. So what we'll do is Bob and I will be filler. okay? And, we'll try, and so what we're going to do is some problems together. And then we're going to throw out a theological issue. And Bob can go for hours on a theological issue. <laughs> so with that, um, let, me, let me explain why I think logic is so important. There's three reasons. The first one is it's going to make us better students of God's word. We have a God who is a rational being, and he's created us to be rational beings as well. Um, That's first and foremost. We at Twin City Fellowship believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that every single Christian is a theologian. And what we want to do is help give you a bigger tool belt, if you know what I mean. The old saying is with carpenters, if all you have is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail after a while. So what we want to do is help give you more tools that you can bring to bear And we want you to bring it to bear in the Great Commission and also contending for the faith once we're all handed down to the saints, right? Now, the second reason I think it's important to study logic is because we're going to be able to refute false worldviews, false beliefs, false religions, and also it's going to keep you from making critical errors when you're reasoning as well. And the third and perhaps the most important reason to learn logic is it's going to help you learn or I should say, read other people's papers. For instance, theologians like Bob. A lot of times Bob uses a lot of big language, and other theologians do too in their papers. I remember when I was a student, and I remember the first time I read somebody ruled out something a priori. I thought that was a person. I didn't know, right? <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I learned differently now. But you'll learn, what if you don't know what a priori means, you'll know by the end of the night. And I remember I just recently I read an introduction to an Old Testament by Dillard and Longman. I don't know if anybody has that. But in their Deuteronomy section, there is a categorical syllogism. And I knew what that was. And it enabled me to read other theologians' material. So those, I think, are the three benefits that you're going to get from taking logic. So bear with me. Stay with the course. And after the end of the four weeks, we're going to get into the stuff that you probably really want to get into. But let me pray over us, and we're going to get started. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise, honor, and glory for who you are and for what you've done for us through your Son. We do give you praise for being a God who is rational and who has created us as rational beings. And also, we praise you that you have given us your word so that we may not rely upon subjective feelings, but we can know you through objective truth. And Lord, I ask that tonight you would speak through even somebody like me and open our ears and our minds and our hearts to this logic so that we may be better students of your word, that we may not be um, conformed to this world, but that we may be transformed by the renewing of the mind. 
and conform more closely to the image of your Son. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, when I'm going to get started here, I want to talk about a common misconception that I've run into with fellow Christians even. And the misconception is that somehow when we're using logic, we are taking a man-made concept, a man-made structure, and we're forcing it upon the Scriptures, okay? And that really started, if I were to make a starting point of that thought process, think about Tertullian. He was a church father who lived from 160 to 220 A.D., and Tertullian once said that, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And he also went on and he said, what concord is there between the academy and the church? And, of course, what he was wrestling with is what does man's logic have to do with God's word? But, you know, friends, I think that's the incorrect way of looking at it. In other words, we don't have man-made logic, but rather God-made logic. Let me show you this first point. Logic is not man-made, but God-made and man-discovered. So just like, uh, think about Isaac Newton. He didn't invent gravity any more than we're inventing logic. What did Isaac Newton do? He merely discovered what God had made. Okay, And so, for instance, even on this slide where you see it says God made, I'd actually maybe even rephrase that and say it's not even so much that God made logic, but rather it emanates from him. It is his character to think rationally. Okay, And thank goodness he's made us rational beings. Therefore, through his word, his special revelation, we can come to know him. Now let me start off by giving you a definition of logic. And this is a definition, by the way, it's going to be making more sense to you on uh, week four than it is on week one. But let's go for it. Definition of logic. Logic is the study of right reason or valid inferences and the attending fallacies formal and informal. So the next four weeks, what we want to do is we want to use deduction, philosophical reasoning. And what we're going to be shooting for is getting at valid inferences. And the way we get valid inferences is avoiding both formal fallacies. Those are the way a formal fallacy is a fallacy in the way the argument is structured. And an informal fallacy is a fallacy or an error in the reasoning process. If we avoid both of those, we're going to get a valid inference. Okay? And again, that's the definition of logic. So this will make more sense to you by week four, the very definition. Now, I'm going to give you a definition that R.C. Sproul uses, and I like it. He calls logic a policeman of thought. And he says it tells us at times you can't go there. So I want you to think about all these thoughts coming down at you on the superhighway of your mind, if you will. And some thoughts are irrational. And if you have a developed sense of logic, the logic policeman should stand up and say, "Eh, you can't go there. Turn around, get out of here, okay? And uh, hopefully he won't give you a ticket. (laughs) So anyway, it'll turn you around. Okay. Now, I have a friend here, Jeff. He and I were actually witnessing to an atheist who had an underdeveloped logic policeman, if you might, you might say. And uh, we were talking to him one time, and he actually made a really bad error, and his logic policeman never stood up and said anything to him. And he and I were looking at each other, and I'll talk a little bit more about it. But the point is, is he made critical logical errors. If he would have known logic better, he wouldn't have made them. Okay. Now, I think there's probably some of the heart involved, too. But uh, logic helps us to realize when we're making errors. All right. Now, what I want to do is talk about the laws of logic. These are the basic structures in which we're going to know things and form arguments. Okay, so the laws of logic. These laws are fundamental to right reasoning. 
they cannot be discarded or gotten behind because they must be assumed to be true in order to deny. Uh, Norman Geisler, and by the way, I'm indebted to Norman Geisler. He has a book called Come, Let Us Reason. And uh, a lot of the definitions that I have in here, I'm indebted to him for. But he has a cute uh, little quip where he says, uh, talking about the postmoderns who are always trying to deny that the laws of logic exist, he says, if you have to use the law of logic that you're trying to deny, you don't have a very good case, do you? Okay? So, friends, we can't get behind these laws, these laws of logic, because in order to deny them, we have to use them. Okay? Let me show you an example of that. We're going to start off with the law of non-contradiction. Simply stated, it says, if A, then not non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. Now, I know to a lot of you that sounds like a lot of abstract goobly gop. So what I recommend to help, when I'm giving you A's and non-A's, put in your favorite pet, you know, the kind. If you have a dog, I'm a, I have a dog. So let's put a dog in there. If a dog, then not a non-dog at the same time and in the same relationship. Sometimes that helps, right? If you're as dense as I am, it helps anyway. Now, the same relationship part, I want you to also feel free to change that to the same sense or the same category. Because sometimes the same relationship, people don't know really what, what that is a reference to. And I'll show you in the next couple of slides why it's important to be able to use same sense or same uh, category. Okay? So this is the law of non-contradiction. Now, I want you to think of it. You can't get behind this. When a postmodern or an emergent thinker tries to deny, because remember, they're rejecting foundationalism. They're saying these laws don't apply. When they try to reject them, they have to assume or use them in order to reject them. Think about it. The law of non-contradiction, if the postmodern says it doesn't exist, well, then it very well can't exist at the same time in the same relationship, you see? That's a violation of the law of non-contradiction. So here they would have to use the law of non-contradiction to prove that there's no law of non-contradiction and they don't have a very good case, okay? All right, now let me show you the next one. This is a deep one. The law of identity. A is A. Or a dog is a dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Troy asked if I'm sure. I, I, I studied hard on this. I, uh, <laughs> a dog is a dog. A Bible is a Bible. This is how we bring up categories or how we declare categories. Now think about if somebody was trying to deny this. You just ask them, well, what law? The law of identity. And as soon as they label it, they're using it. You see, this is how we declare things. A is A and not something else. And again, all of these laws are really tied to the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction is the home plate or the mother load of all the laws. Let me show you another one. The law of excluded middle. Either A or non-A. Either a dog or a non-dog, right? Now, this law I like to use in my debate with the pro-choice crowd. And what I'll often do is say, well, hey, either the baby is, the unborn is either human or non-human, okay? There's no in-between, right? And what I do is I let them try to come up with what it is. And I often stand there with my foot tapping, and they'll, they don't want to say it's human because then they'll be committing murder. So they have to say something non-human. And so as they're thinking about it, I'll throw, I'll throw in, well, maybe it's a UFO. Maybe it's a lizard. Of course, well, of course it becomes absurd. So their only way out, they feel, is to say, well, it's potential life. Well, what's the problem with it being potential life? Well, nothing exists in the area of potentiality. Friends, I am potential, potentially the fastest man on the earth. Right? But what am I actually? I'm actually, I'm actually so slow you could probably measure my 100-yard dash with a sundial. Okay? I'm really slow. So potentially doesn't cut it. What are they actually? Okay? 
So we don't let him off the hook there, all right? And we can use that, even the law of excluded middle in that debate. So again, you can't get around these laws. Let me show you another one. It's the law of rational inference. Going from what is known to what is unknown using inferences. And again, we can do this through either deduction or induction, and we're going to be concentrating on philosophical reasoning, which is deduction. And what we want to do, again, is go from what is known and have valid inferences so we can learn things of other categories, you see. So without this law, we can't ever know anything. This law, in another way, is stated, if premise A is true and premise B is true, premise or conclusion C must necessarily be true, okay? So without this law, we can't know anything. This is how we come to know anything at all. All right, now let me give you the last one. Now, a lot of theolo- or logicians, I should say, don't use this one because they figure it's assumed in the law of non-contradiction. It's the law of causality. But I like it because we're going to use it when we talk about cosmology and other scientific arguments, okay? Now, really quick, the law of causality just says every effect has a cause. Now, why would that be assumed under the law of non-contradiction? Well, think about it. How could something not exist and exist at the same time to put itself into existence? That violates the law of non-contradiction. So, therefore, you can't have anything that self-creates itself. But we just use this law as shorthand. The law of causality really says the same thing. Every effect must have a cause. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about understanding these laws appropriately. And, again, we're going to be talking about the law of non-contradiction. If A, then not non-A at the same time. And here I put in the same sense. Now, what I'm going to first do is I'm going to show you some misunderstandings. And one of the misunderstandings uh, in the scriptures uh, is in Matthew chapter 10. What you'll find is that many postmoderns want to find a contradiction in the Bible because they believe if there's a contradiction in the Bible, then they can start making the Bible say what they want it to say or they don't have to believe it at all. Okay? They love contradictions. They relish in paradoxes. But what I'm going to show you is there's actually no contradiction here at all. In Matthew chapter 10, here Jesus talking, just after he talked about picking up the cross, he says this, he says, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And the postmodern reasons, aha, that's a contradiction. You've got gaining life and you've got losing life at the same time, right? But the problem is, look at the definition of the law of non-contradiction. At the very end, it says, in the same sense. You see, friends, Jesus is using life in two different senses. In one sense, he's talking about temporal life. In another sense, he's talking about eternal life. And so, therefore, the law doesn't apply. So let me put that up here. All right? So he's talking about temporal life, and what we want to do is lose that in order to gain what kind of life? Well, eternal life. Okay? So, again, they were misunderstanding, these postmoderns, the law of non-contradiction. So it's no contradiction at all. Isn't that good news? Let me show you another one that often Jehovah Witnesses will throw at us or Muslims. They claim this with the Trinity. They claim in error, you believe in one God and three gods at the same time. Now, again, the last part of the law of non-contradiction in the same sense, or maybe you could say it in the same category, applies here. And, again, you're going to see that this is no contradiction at all because we don't believe in one God and three gods at the same time, but rather we believe in one God and three persons. Okay, so you see the different categories? It's like believing we have one government and we have three branches. Nobody says, well, you believe in one government and three governments. 
you have a, you know, they don't say that, but they try to do that with God, right? So, no, that's not a misunderstanding. The Trinity, or I should say it is a misunderstanding, the Trinity is not a contradiction, okay? We have two different categories, one God, three persons. All right, now, let me show you how to correctly understand the law of non-contradiction because Paul actually uses it in an argument where he is persuading the Corinthians who say there is categorically no such thing as a resurrection. Now listen to Paul's argument. He says this, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And by the way, there's a hypothetical syllogism in that. We'll talk about that later. I don't want to bog down. But notice what Paul is saying here. This fits the law of non-contradiction because he's saying this. He's saying if there has been a resurrection, namely one, Jesus, right, then the opposite cannot be true. Then it is not true that there are no such things as resurrections. Okay? So the opposite would not be true then. All right? So Paul is here using the law of non-contradiction. Let me show you another spot. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul uses it again. And if you recall, uh, uh, Bob has been preaching or teaching through 2 Corinthians at Sunday school. And you know one of the issues in 2 Corinthians are the false teachers that are trying to bring Paul's name under disrepute, aren't they? They're trying to call into question his character, saying that he's a liar and he speaks with a forked tongue. But what does Paul say here? He's talking about going to Corinth and he was detained, not because he lied, but because he couldn't help being detained. So he says here in response, he says, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Well, again, the law of non-contradiction. If yes, A, then not non-yes, which would be no, or non-A at the same time and in the same sense, right? So again, we see the law of non-contradiction or logic all over the scriptures. And this is good news, you guys. You see, God does not speak with a forked tongue. In the New Testament, we see the concept of truth, aletheia. In the Old Testament, it's ameth. And our God is a God who speaks forthrightly. He doesn't say contradictions. He speaks intelligibly so that we can know things. Okay? God doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't lie to us. And that's good news. We'll see all the time in the scriptures that there are no true contradictions. We have a God who speaks truthfully. And sure enough, Paul does as well. Now let me show you the law of excluded middle. We can see that in Matthew chapter 12 here, where Christ says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so again, how is this the law of excluded middle? Well, either you're for Christ, A, or you're against Christ, non-A. Right? So again, we see a law of logic in the Scriptures. All right? So there's logic in the Bible. All right? Now, what I want to do is show you another misunderstanding of one of the laws, the law of causality. And in the law of causality, the way it should be stated is every effect must have a cause. And notice I put on here a sufficient cause because to be careful about it, sometimes people, they'll have a cause for an effect, but it's not sufficient. So I want to be very careful of my, uh, with my terminology there. But here's an argument that atheists will often put forward and sometimes agnostics. Here's what they'll say. And this is actually in a syllogism. There's, there's two premises and a conclusion. So premise number one, everything needs a cause, they reason. Premise two, God is a thing. And here comes the conclusion. And you can always put a, a therefore in there. Therefore, God needs a cause. Now, what's the problem with that? 
Well, the problem lies in the first premise, right? The first premise gets the law of causality wrong. The law of causality doesn't say everything needs a cause. It simply says what? Every effect must have a sufficient cause, right? And so they got it wrong here. By definition, God is not an effect. He is eternal. He is the uncaused causer, all right? In fact, we see that in Exodus 3.14. Remember when God uh, tells uh, Moses in the burning bush, Moses asks, who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? And God responds, tell them I am sent you. Literally, it's a yiktol verb. It's a form of a verb which literally can mean I will be who I will be or I am who I am. And what I think is powerful about that is here we have our God, his character, the eternal one. Actually, his being and his characteristics consists with what we know about logic. Okay? In other words, if there was ever a time that there was nothing, there would be nothing now. So something has to be eternal, right? And lo and behold, we find from the scriptures that it's God. And so our scriptures are declaring to us the very character of God that we would expect with the known laws of logic that we have. And it's a great comfort, or should be, to all of us that, yes, the Bible is true and it's the inerrant word of God. Okay? All right. Now, we're going to move on here. All right, now I want to talk about deduction versus induction. I don't know how many have heard of those different terms, but these are the two methods in which we're going to use to gain knowledge. Now, I want to be clear. The first four weeks that we're together here, the only thing we're going to be able to cover is deduction. It's philosophical reasoning. Okay? Induction has to do with scientific reasoning. Okay? Now, let me show you some of the differences, and this will make sense. Deduction is, again, philosophical reasoning or logic. That's what we're engaged in. And what we do with deduction is we go from general to particular, whereas in induction or scientific reasoning, we go from particular to general. Let me give you an example of deduction. I'm going from general to particular. If I was going to make a syllogism going from general to particular, I might say all mammals have hair. Now, by the way, you guys, it's been a long time since I've taken biology, so I don't even know if that's true. Okay? <laughs> I was thinking, like, well, I, anyway, they, I think they have hair. But anyway, that's beside the point. All mammals have hair. Second premise, Muffy has hair. Conclusion, therefore, Muffy is a mammal. Do you see how we went from the general, all mammals have hair, to the particular, Muffy has, or Muffy is a mammal, right? Does that make sense? So we went from general to particular. Now let's talk about induction or the scientific reasoning. That's going from particular to general. Let's say you're sitting underneath a tree, an apple tree, and you're reading your Bible. And doink, you get hit in the head with an apple. And you say, well, I'm going to get out of here. You move to another tree, and it's an acorn tree, which are uh, oak trees, right? (laughs) My biology is really bad. Okay, so all of a sudden, you're reading there, and doink, something hits you in the head again. And what you figure out from getting hit on the head from falling objects is gravity. Okay, so what you did is you went from the particular observations to the general principle of gravity. Okay, that's induction. That's the scientific method, all right? Now, let me show you what else we can do with deduction and induction. From de- with deduction, deduction we go from general to general. Induction is particular to particular. Deduction is from cause to effect. Induction is effect to cause. And deduction, now here it comes. Here's my a priori reasoning that I had no idea uh, a few years ago what, that was ta- what they were talking about. A priori reasoning, what's so significant about that is... is In fact, let me give you a story to demonstrate it. Jeff and I, my friend here, we were witnessing at an atheist conference. Now, that's a lot of fun, I'll tell you. 
and we got into an informal debate with an atheist, and this atheist made an argument where, in so many words, he believed that nothing could do something. Now, right away, our logic cop came up and both and hit us both in the head, and we looked at each other with our jaws wide open, and we knew, because he said a logical absurdity, that we could rule out his argument a priori, which means, because of logic, we didn't have to look at any more evidence. We knew what he was saying was absurd, and we could rule it out. That's what a priori reasoning does. It leads us to necessary conclusions, and that's why this is so powerful. It's a great... Um, Deduction and logic, it's such a powerful tool because it yields necessary conclusions. Whereas a pastori is reasoning after you look at evidence. Okay? Now, again, uh, deduction is philosophical reasoning. Induction is scientific reasoning. And again, deduction, again, this is why it's so powerful that we're going to be using this is because it yields necessary conclusions. When we prove the existence of God, we're actually going to be using both induction and deduction. But when we use deduction, it's really powerful because it yields necessary conclusions. Induction always yields probable conclusions. Now, they may be very probable. They may be 99.9% probable, but they're always only going to be probable because the scientific method is governed by analogy. And Bob and I in the fourth night are actually going to talk about the analogical use of language. Okay, And so we'll talk a little bit about that. But logic, on the other hand, friends, when we can bring deduction into the, to the matters, is really good because we're using or dealing with necessary conclusions. Now, we're, what we want to be about here is bringing up and making and examining arguments, right? And what is an argument? Well, briefly stated, an argument is the providing of reasons for the basis of a conclusion, right? In order to make an argument, we're going to be using these little animals called syllogisms. And a syllogism is made up of three propositions. There are going to be two premises and a conclusion. Okay? So they're all propositions, but two of them are premises and one is a conclusion. All right? Now, let me give you an example. This is a syllogism. Premise one, no Christians are unsaved. Okay? Premise two, some people are unsaved. And here comes the conclusion, therefore, it's implied, some people are not Christian. All right? So there we have, that's our first syllogism we've looked at. Two premises and a conclusion. All right, now next, a valid argument. What is a valid argument? A valid argument is an argument that is structured without error. If its two premises are true, its conclusion must be true. Okay, now let me talk about this a little bit. Validity is different than soundness. When you have a valid argument, that argument isn't necessarily true. Validity just deals with the structure of the argument. So what we're doing right now is we're going to be in a building block process like mathematics. So by next week, you're going to actually be evaluating different syllogisms and determining if they're formally valid. Okay? So, friends, validity is different than soundness because validity isn't necessarily concerned with truth. Now, how can you have a valid argument that's still untrue? Well, one of the premises would be false. Okay? So you would have a valid, the form would be right, but maybe one of the premises is factually faulted. Okay? Because remember, something is true only when it accords with the facts. That's when our premise... So what this is going to enable us to do is to be very precise with people's arguments on our own. We can say, well, what was the problem? Was it in the way he had the, the argument structured? And if they have the argument structured correctly, then we can look at each of the premises and say, ah, I take issue with that. That doesn't accord with the facts. That's why it's wrong. 
Okay, do you see? So that's validity. Validity doesn't have anything to do with, about, with the truth of the, the premise. Okay? Now, let's move on to soundness. Soundness is an argument that is both valid and true. Okay? So in this case, it's both structurally sound and the premises are true, and therefore the conclusion must be true. Okay? Does that make sense? Everybody see that? All right. Now, again, let me show you this uh, example. This is the syllogism we just looked at. No, Christians are unsaved. Some people are unsaved. Some people are not Christian. Now, you're going to have to take my word for it. This is actually a valid syllogism. And you're going to learn by next week, you'll be able to tell if it's valid or not. How are you going to do that? There are seven rules that you're going to apply to a syllogism, and you're going to be able to determine if it's valid or invalid. Okay? And you're going to be able to do that by the end of next week, with God's grace. All right? (laughs) I'm a Calvinist, after all. All right. Now, so that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you prepared so we can do that. By the way, this would also be a sound argument because we know the premises are both true. Now, how do we know that? Well, because the Bible says they're true. All right. Isn't that neat? We use the Bible to prove logic, but later on we're going to use logic to prove the Bible. Okay. Oh, that's exciting. All right. Now, let's look at some syllogisms. Again, a syllogism is made up of three propositions, two premises, and one conclusion. And there are three types of propositions. Now, actually, I'd like you to think of these as not three types of propositions, but three types of syllogisms, because it's going to confuse you, because I'm going to have four kinds of propositions later for categorical syllogisms. It'll make sense here in a minute. So here are the three types. The first type is a categorical. This is that. All right? And that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight and tomorrow. A categorical syllogism. This is that. Then we're going to have hypothetical syllogisms. If this, then that. If there's a resurrection, then it can't be true that there are no resurrections, right? Hypothetical syllogism or a proposition. And then we have a disjunctive. It's either this or that. Now, these are the main three, but there's also what's called a conjunctive. And a conjunctive is it's both this and that. All right. Now, I look at that as part of the family of the disjunctive. So these are the main three that I want you to see, and we're going to get through all three of these types by week four, all right? And we're going to be using them. All right, now, I want to talk about the composition of propositions, all right? And there's four parts to a proposition. The first part is the subject, the thing or thought about which the assertion is made. We have the predicate, that which is asserted about the subject. We have... The copula, which is the linking verb that connects subject and predicate. And then we have the quantifier, the extent or number of the subject. It's going to be all, some, or none. And what I want you to realize is that some isn't all, but it's at least one. Okay, does that make sense? (laughs) Let's see. Now I'm going to give you an example. Let me go really carefully through this with you. Let's first of all start at the top. Number one, let's look for the subject. Well, notice the subject is, are the Baptists, right? The predicate would be the baptized. What happened to those rascals, those Baptists? Well, they were baptized. The predicate always tells us about the subject. And the linking verb or the copula is the R, and the quantifier is the all. So let me put up, there's the quantifier, there's the subject, there's the copula, And there is the predicate. Bingo. That's what makes up a proposition. Now, when we're dealing with propositions, what we're going to find out is these are the things that make up syllogisms. 
And we're going to see that there are only four kinds of propositions, all right, that make up a syllogism. There's a universal affirmative, a universal negative, a particular affirmative, and a particular negative. And we're going to get into that in the next slide. So these propositions are important because what you're going to start doing is you're going to start looking at them, determining what type of proposition they are, so later on you can check for validity. All right? Now, understanding the propositions, I have a little concept for you. And the concept that I want you to remember is when you're checking to see if something is either affirmative or negative in the predicate, you're always going to look to the copula. Okay? So if anybody asks you what you learned tonight, just say, well, when you're checking for affirmative or negative proposition predicates, you always look to the copula, of course. <laughs> It'd be a real hit in the party, wouldn't you? All right. So let's um, look at a universal affirmative. Now, notice all is not some, so it's universal, right? All men, not some men. It's all men are, and notice the R is underlined, and there's no not there. So that's affirmative. All men are sinners. That's a universal affirmative. That's the first of the four types of propositions. And it's also called, in shorthand, by logicians, an A. They use A-E-I-O. I don't know why. They, they, they do that. So it's, a, it's shorthand for the logician. So now let me show you another one. This is a little trickier because it says all men are non-righteous. Now here's the rub. What you and I have to be able to do is determine whether the non or the un or the not or the no goes with the copula or goes with the predicate. Does that make sense? And here, let me explain another little feature to these. I'm going to put it at the bottom. This is another principle that we want to remember. Remember this principle. No and not go with the copula, whereas non and un go with subjects and predicates. Does that make sense? So now look at the one that we just looked at. Notice it says non-righteous. Well, non and un, according to our principle below, that goes with predicates. But how are we determining whether a proposition is affirmative or negative? Look at the top. We always look at the copula. Okay? So when we look at the copula, it's R. The non doesn't have any part of it. The non is part of the predicate. Does that make sense? Okay? So the R is standing alone, and therefore, it is affirmative. All right? So now, those are two examples of a universal affirmative. Now let me show you a universal negative. All men are not righteous. Okay, now again, is that not part of the copula or is it part of the predicate? Well, what's our principle down below say? No one not go with the copula. Okay, so it's part of the copula. How do we determine if a proposition is affirmative or negative? We always look to the copula. Well, what is the copula? It says are not. Therefore, what? It should be a negative. And, of course, we know it's universal because it says all men. All right? Does that make sense? All men are not righteous. Now, I'm going to throw a little wrench in things, in the machinery, real quick. We're not actually going to write our uh, universal negative propositions this way. Okay? We're actually going to write them this way. No men are righteous. Okay? Now, why am I being such a stickler on this? Well, let me explain. Let me tell you a little story. This is the only way I can think of explaining this. The reason we're not going to say all men are not righteous and no men are righteous, the reason why those two things really are saying the same thing, but we're going to use the bottom one, is because think about a, a daughter and a mother. And the daughter just broke up with her boyfriend, and she's, her beans are really steamed. She's mad about it. And she says, that Jerry is a creep. And the mother says, oh, now, honey, all men 
are not creeps. Now, does she mean, the mother, that universally on the entire planet there's not a single man that's a creep? No, she doesn't mean that because she already probably affirms that her daughter's boyfriend was a creep. What she actually means is that some men are not creeps. Does that make sense? So, again, what I want you to realize is that all men are not righteous is the same thing as no men are righteous. Now, how would you convert no men are righteous? Think about the no there. Look at our principle, no and not go with the copula. So you're going to take that no, you're going to move it over next to the R, and you're going to say men are not righteous. All right? That's how you can think about it. But when we write it, we want to say no men are righteous. So those are the universal negatives. Now, let me go on to the particular affirmative and particular negative, and then we'll see all four of these bad boys. So here I'm going to put up the two that we already know. Universal affirmative, all men are sinners. Universal negative, no men are righteous. Okay? Then here comes the particular affirmative, some men. Okay, now that's why it's particular, right? It's some men. It's not all men. Some men are saved. All right. Now, here is the particular negative. Some men are not saved. And again, how do we know that it's negative? Well, we know no and not go with a copula. And how do we check to see if something's affirmative or negative? We always look to the copula. And we know the copulas are not. And therefore, it's particular negative. Okay. Now, why is this important? Because these four types of propositions are what comprise and make up our syllogisms. Okay. So next week, what we're going to do is we have to determine what type of proposition we're looking at when we apply our seven rules of validity. Okay? Clear as mud, right? All right. All right. Now, let me show you another screen here. And there's one more concept that I want you to see. And it's actually a foreshadowing for next week. Four types of propositions. Again, we have on the very far left of my screen, do you see where it says U-A-U-N-P-A-P-N? That's universal affirmative, or it's called an A. We have a universal negative, which is called an E. And then below that, we have a particular affirmative and a particular negative. Those are I's and O's. Now, here's what I want you to see. Do you see by the subjects of the universal propositions, do you notice the arrows that say distributed? You see that? Here's a principle that I want you to remember for next week. And I'm going to talk about distribution next week because distribution is key for us for checking validity. So I want you to remember this principle Universal subjects are always distributed. Okay? So keep that in your mind. Now, notice down at the particular propositions down below where it says some dogs, they're always undistributed. Okay? So only universal subjects are distributed. Now, move over with me with the pre- to the predicates. Do you notice where it says, you know, the universal affirmative? You notice that's undistributed, the predicate? Do you guys all see that? I have it. Um, abbreviated well notice the negative is distributed both in the universal and the particular does everybody see that i'm looking at the predicate so here's the principle that i want you to remember and don't ask why because next week i'm going to explain distribution because it would take way too long right now but if you get this concept memorized it's going to make it so much easier when we start checking for validity this is the the procedure that i want you to remember or the, the the saying universal subjects and negative predicates are distributed. Bingo. And I'll explain distribution. And if you memorize that, you're going to go places next week, okay? Universal subjects and negative predicates are distributed. All right? Now, I don't know how, I don't know how, where we are in, for time here. 
Well, I tell you what, we actually have a little bit of time. I put on a screen some examples, and I thought we would go through them together. Okay? And I was going to save them for actually our discussion time. But Bob and I, we, can, we have plenty of material. So what I can do is let's get into some examples. And what we'll do is we'll go for another, um, about another five minutes, and then we'll take a break. Okay? So here are some examples of some propositions. And just sit there and think about them for a moment. I won't explain what they are, but just write down what you think they are. Here's the first one. All Christians are saved. Okay, now what would that be? That would be a universal affirmative, right? Universal because it's all, and it's, why is it uh, universal because it's all, but why is it affirmative? Because it's our and not our not, and we always look to the copula, right? So that would be a universal affirmative. All right, how about number two? No Baptists are Presbyterians. What, What was that? Universal negative, right. And how do we know that? Oh, <laughs> that's right. So the no, we, we could say it another way. We could say Baptists are not Presbyterians, right? We can move that no over. And no and not always go with a copula. And we always look to, to the copula to see if it's affirmative or negative. And Baptists, we don't have to put all in front of that because we assume all when it just says Baptists. So it's universal Negative. Well done. All right, how about this one? Some people who attend church are not true believers. Tell Rick Warren that. (laughs) Um, Okay. So some people who attend church are not true believers. What would that be? That's right. A particular negative. That's right, because the are not. And the sum, obviously, is not universal. It's particular, okay? Salvation is a free gift. It's a little tricky. What would that be? Yep, universal affirmative. Salvation is seen as uh, something in one category. It's one unit. Okay, well, how about this one? You guys are doing really good. Bertrand Russell is an atheist. Universal affirmative. Bertrand Russell is one unit. So when you're looking for universal or... Uh, particular, I always think about the unit. Um, that's, so in other words, if it's a person, that's one whole unit. Okay, So that would be universal. And of course, it's an uh, affirmative because there's an is and not a not or a no there. All right? Now how about this one? Some people are non-Christians. Particular. Oh. Oh. <laughs> right. This is a tricky one. I'm glad. This is a good one. This would be a particular affirmative. Now, why is it not a negative? Because non and un go with what? Subjects and predicates. Okay, so now we know that R is alone. And how do we test to see if something's negative or affirmative? We always look to the copula. And all we have is R. And therefore, we know it's, it's uh, an affirmative or positive. Okay? All right, now number seven. Let's do this one together. Some Hindus are not pantheists. Particular, Particular negative. Yes. Is everybody seeing that one? Okay, because the not goes with the copula. And when we look to the copula, it's negative, and therefore it's a particular negative. All right, logic is not used by everybody. Trust me, I know that one for sure. 
What would that one be? Universal negative. Exactly. Yep. How about number nine? Many unsaved people are good neighbors. That's a little tricky. Now, is it all unsaved people or is it just a certain number? It's just many, right? So I'd be particular. And, of course, the R would be affirmative. Okay. Now, the last one. All non-believers are non-Christians. What would that one be? Universal affirmative, right? Because the non and the un go with the predicate. When we're checking to see if something's affirmative or negative, we always look to the copula. The copula is alone with just R. You guys are doing really well. This took this kind of bums me out because it took me like three weeks to figure this out in school. And you guys already have it. I'm ready to quit. I might just fold it in and go home. <laughs> no, okay. All right. Now, I tell you what, you guys, um, it's about break time, but we have a, just a couple minutes. I tell you what I'm going to do. I was going to use this for homework for you guys, but you guys did so well and we're so far ahead of the game. I wrote down some other ones, and I want to have you copy these down. I apologize. Normally I'll have your homework on a slide, and so you'll have it in the paperwork, so I'll do that for next time. But let me have you write these down, and then what we'll do is first thing next week, we'll check them together, and that way you're working on them during the week. And just go around and just say, you know, some lizards are warm, and just go around and say things all the time, and you'll get these things, on, you'll, you know, so it, it really helps. Yeah, you'll get arrested, yeah. <laughs> I'll throw you in the loony bin. All right. Um, here's one. No atheists are Christians. God cannot sin. And let me know if I'm going too fast. Oh, okay, sorry. The sec- I'm sorry. The first one was no atheists are Christians. And the second one is God cannot sin. The next one is Here's one from Romans. None is righteous. And the next one, no man has seen God. The next one, uh, nobody seeks God. The next one, okay. The next one is some Christians are non-obedient people. Non-obedient people. Some Christians are non-obedient people. The next one, not all preachers are Protestant. Don't we wish. All right, the next one. Oh, sorry. That one was not all preachers are Protestant. And the next one is they are not among the believers. They are not among the believers. And the final one is those books are in the Bible. Those books are in the Bible. All right. So now I tell you what, let's take a, what do you think, a 10-minute break? Yeah, and we'll come back.